tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please remember to drop a sub, drop a like, and leave your thoughts down below in the comments. With that, we will see you guys in the podcast. Welcome, Steve, to the World XP Podcast. Uh, we've been playing email tag. Obviously, you've been refueling your reactor, which I still don't know what that means, but that's what I know you've been doing. So it's been a little while. We've been playing email tag, and now we're here. So uh, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, I know we might touch on the gymnastics stuff potentially, but go ahead and introduce yourself and, and welcome. All right. Uh, yeah. So I'm Steve Ham. Um, I'm a nuclear engineer by degree. Um, although I've technically never been a nuclear engineer uh, by trade, I uh, work for the largest green energy company in the United States. Uh, that is the they're the largest producer of carbon free electricity in the United States. Uh, I currently work at a nuclear power plant in the Midwest. Uh, I have my senior reactor operator's license uh, that I received from the, the U.S. government from the NRC in 2016. Um, I currently bounce back and forth between planning outages and uh, running a nuclear reactor from the control room as a unit supervisor. So we were just chatting beforehand, and for so I have a very rudimentary understanding of how the, I'll say, can we still call them alternative? Or maybe the the non fossil fuel energy sources kind of goes like the where they get it from. And then from coal, it's like you boil it and then it's steam into a turbine. Although that's kind of less clean. But so, can you sort of go through and explain how the nuclear side works? Because I think it's a difficult conceptually. People hear nuclear power and they think Chernobyl and three headed horses and all sorts <laughs> of other things. Yeah, uh, so most people have a, a rudimentary understanding, at least, of how a power plant works. That you boil water, uh, that water creates steam, and you turn a turbine, which turns a turbine generator and creates electricity. Uh, nuclear power, uh, in the United States at least, uh, and mostly most places across the world outside of uh, advanced reactor designs that we really don't use outside of research, uh, operate the same way. But instead of burning fossil fuels uh, to create your, for your heat source, uh, we use nuclear fission. So you have a, a nuclear. We, you have a neutron which uh, splits a uranium two thirty five atom uh, that releases that splits off into its daughter parts and releases energy. Uh, that energy is utilized to boil water. Uh, boiling that water creates steam, which will then turn the turbine, and that turns the turbine generator and creates electricity. So that's kind of your your base level. It works the same way as a as a coal plant would, in that in, in that sense. So. When you're talking the the reactor and to the steam, but I would and one of the things you mentioned beforehand as well was that it's a closed loop, and so a lot of times we hear about power plants creating waste. If it's what sort of what are the stipulations, I guess, of of creating electricity in this fashion that would I don't know. Again, coming from I don't really understand how it works, like, but I've seen, like, there's a lake in Virginia called Lake Anna, and there's a power plant there, and, it, like, stuff kind of spews out from the power plant into the lake a little bit, which is always fun. Um, makes the water warm, which I guess is nice. I don't, it might be a nuclear, I don't know. But it's anyway, North Anna. It, it is a nuclear power plant there yeah. in Virginia on Lake Anna. Yeah, so how does, how does the, like, the, the waste side of things work? So there's, there's two things uh, that generally people think of when they think of waste. Usually people think of waste in nuclear power. They think of spent fuel, um, and that does exist. That is a byproduct of nuclear power. Uh, after so much of the uranium-235 uh, inside the reactor has been burned, the fuel can no longer be utilized. It, it can't sustain the nuclear chain reaction anymore, um, and that's what that refueling outages that you kind of touched on uh, in the intro, that's where those come into play. Uh, so we will then once uh, the plant that I worked at is on a two-year cycle. There's two units, so once a year we're refueling one of the one of the units, and so we end up we take the top off, uh, we go in, we shuffle the fuel around to make sure it's in the the configuration we want, and then the fuel that's spent, uh, which is usually some percentage, usually it's a third of the fuel gets removed from the reactor, and then a third of the new fuel gets put in, uh, and that fuel that we remove that is burnt and can no longer uh, sustain a nuclear chain reaction is stored in fuel pools uh, locally on site um, until some level of uh, heat decay because um, what's unique about nuclear power 
is that after the fuel is removed and the nuclear chain reaction is stopped, um, there's still energy inside uh, those fuel sources. They still produce heat, which is why you have to store them in a fuel pool uh, while they decay away. They hit a certain level, and then we uh, store them in what we call dry cast storage, which then you transfer those over to these giant concrete structures uh, where you store the uh, move the fuel into those. Uh, they fill them, uh, then they vacuum seal them. Uh, there's a whole process there, and then they get stored out locally on pads. Right now, uh, across the United States, as uh, as you know, Yucca Mountain was never completed uh, fully, and so right now, any nuclear power plant in the United States uh, stores their spent fuel on site. Now, uh, the plant that I work at came online in the 80s, and all the spent fuel that we've ever had uh, sits on site in a concrete pad, roughly the size of a football field, and it's nowhere near even full yet. So. Uh, in the 30-some uh, years that the uh, plant's been running and making electricity, uh, we still store all our fuel uh, on site. So that's one waste that people think of, and that, that, race does, that waste will stay radioactive. Now, it can be stored safely. Those canisters that are, in are, are tested uh, to the most extreme conditions um, that you could imagine. And so they're stored locally on site until we find a, uh, a future storage uh, solution uh, that everybody can come to agreement. There's a lot of politics uh, involved with that that I, I won't get into with just this, uh, unless you got more questions, which you might, but then I might get into it. Uh, and then the other ways people think is is releases. Um, so a lot of people think of nuclear power and they think of the big cooling towers, the uh, Homer Simpson, uh, that kind of thing. And what people don't understand is those cooling towers are just big cloud generators. Uh, all they're doing is you're taking your circ water, which is used to uh, as a ultimate heat sink for your condenser because you got to condense that steam that you're creating back into water after uh, it spins your turbine. And so that's only a cooling medium. So it pumps that water through those cooling towers and uses ambient air uh, to cool that water. And then what you see coming out there is essentially the moisture uh, being, the condensation happening being pulled into the, the cooling medium and they're just producing clouds. That all that is, it's just a big cloud generator. Uh, in fact, if you look at states like Indiana, which doesn't have any nuclear power uh, outside of the research reactor at Purdue University, just had to uh, give that a little shout out. Um, they have those on at coal plants as well. And you look and you're like, oh, that must be a nuclear power plant. Nah, a, a cooling tower is just a cooling medium. Every power plant that runs on a steam cycle uh, needs an ultimate heat sink. It's no different for nuclear power. So that's what you see there. Um, and then the other one uh, you had mentioned is like, uh, like Lake Anna in Virginia. A lot of nuclear power plants use a ultimate heat sink that is a lake uh, or the ocean. And you mentioned making the water warm, and that's because you're you're pumping water in through. Uh, it goes through your condenser just like it would on a coal plant. Um, it then transfers that heat from your steam cycle into that and pumps it back out to the lake. Um, and there's no byproduct. You're not actually pumping water that went through the reactor out to the lake. You're just pumping water that came from the lake. It goes through your condenser and then goes back to your lake, and all you did was heat that water up. Um, and that's why lakes like uh, Lake Anna stay warm, warmer year-round, and you end up getting really big fish. Uh, people like to say, hey, the big fish, that, that must be from nuclear, right? Now, that's, that's just because you keep the lake warm so the fish can grow bigger. Yeah. So how does that work then? So they pump – so, like, my brain is trying to – so, like, when the water comes in from the lake, for instance, what is it cooling exactly that doesn't touch the rest of the – the like the reaction or whatever plant it's in like how does that mechanism work uh yeah so your condenser has hundreds of hundreds and thousands of uh, tubes in it um and so you pump the cool water from your lake inlet or ocean inlet or whatever river inlet some plants use rivers um and that goes through those tubes and then back out and then your steam like i mentioned in a boiling water reactor that water is boiled right inside the uh the reactor and so it is radioactive steam uh, so that steam goes through, spins your turbine, and then goes down into your condenser, and can that steam gets pushed down on top of those tubes where it condenses back into water. Um, and so that process is kept separate because you have your cooling medium coming from your lake or your river or your ocean going to those tubes, and then your energy uh, from the steam um, hits those tubes, condenses, and cools down. So the two are separate at all times. Well, that's good to know because otherwise I'd have a third head. Um, <laughs> you implied that you have a second head. I well, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. Never mind. All right, moving on. Um, so 
the other part I wanted to touch on real quick before we get into your background and then sort of the more the, the, the generalities around how the power, like how the sort of power ecosystem is changing is you're talking about nuclear engineering. What does that actually entail, right? Because you have the reaction within the plant that creates the heat, but what is the engineering that's done? Like, what, like when you say nuclear engineer, what is that? So, uh, like I kind of mentioned, I uh, am a nuclear engineer by degree, uh, but yeah. never by trade. I, I was never actually employed as a nuclear engineer. But as you go through college, the engineering side of it uh, has to do with the, the physics behind the nuclear reaction. So uh, going through college, uh, you do a lot of the same stuff that you see a mechanical or electrical engineers do. You learn the mechanical cycles, uh, how, the vari- how, the plant, how the various plants work and the physical mechanisms behind those. And then you get into the nuclear specific. How does a chain reaction work? Um, what sustains it? What are the physics that go into it? Uh, you get into to some quantum theory there, uh, nuclear physics, that kind of stuff. What, what sustains the reaction? Why does it occur? Uh, and that, that kind of thing. So that's the engineering side. And is, if you were to take that into a profession, what the nuclear engineers do, a lot of it, um, it goes into fuel design, uh, how you design the fuel uh, to best, transfer heat off the fuel how to pack the uranium or the fuel other any fuel source uh in there in the most efficient manner that's going to help you produce energy uh that kind of thing and then the core design a lot of the nuclear engineering has to go with the core design because it matters uh the placement of the different fuel bundles the enrichments of the various fuel bundles um the burn rate of the various fuel bundles how long it's been in the in the core uh when you shuffle it around each refueling outage and how you do that to, to maintain an even power distribution. Uh, that's a big part of design in a nuclear core is maintaining that energy production even throughout the core. Because uh, if you don't place those, you could get power peaks in various uh, parts of the reactor, which you don't want. You want to maintain that flux profile as flat as possible. Um, and then also, all right, I want to put enough fuel in the vessel so it can run for the, the two years that it needs to run. We call it a breaker-to-breaker run. So you close the breaker and start producing electricity at the end of the outage, and you don't want to open that breaker back up until you start your refueling outage two years later. Uh, so the design to say, this is the amount of fuel I want in there, and then the cost basis for I'm going to run for two years, so this is how much fuel I want to put in there. So I want to burn as much of it as possible. So I enter a period that we call coast-down where essentially you're, you're, you're throttled full open. It's like you've got the gas all the way down, and you're running out of gas, and you just coast down into that refueling outage. So you, you had a cost effectiveness there that you burned as much of the fuel as possible. And so that, that's what the nuclear engineering uh, aspect looked at. Uh, you could also get into, I mean, if power production isn't uh, what you're looking at, uh, is uh, reactor design. So you have advanced reactors. There's been a lot of talk uh, in innovation space. Uh, Bill Gates has his company that's looking at small modular reactors. That's like the next big thing in nuclear power. Um, 10, 15 years ago when I uh, got into, uh, when I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into nuclear energy. That's what I want to do. It was new build. Uh, you've got your plant down in Georgia, Volga, which is an AP-1000. You're a big dinosaur, big giant reactors. Uh, that was the big thing uh, before Fukushima happened was new build. Um, but now we're moving away from some of the larger reactors based on cost and cost-effectiveness and looking at these small modular reactors and how they have more passive safety systems, that kind of stuff. So you could get – an a nuclear engineer could get uh, involved in something like that, reactor design, or you could even get into uh, medical isotope production. Uh, a guy I used to work with who left the company that I worked at um, – I'm sorry, i got to stop my uh, timer here. Hey, Google, stop. That was uh, the timer I set to remind myself to jump on this at noon central time. Yeah. Time zones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so you could get into uh, – he left and does medical isotope production. So he works in a particle accelerator uh, to create medical isotopes for cancer treatments and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you could also get into nuclear fusion, uh, working at like Eater or, or – uh, Argonne National Labs, that kind of stuff. Uh, so the, the, there is a lot of branches where you could branch off and, and look at different things. I just happen to go into energy production and uh, work at a utility. Gotcha. So I had um, I had a guy named Garrett on the podcast. He's a quantum physicist. And one of the things that he was talking about was particle accelerators and other things. And I, my brain is trying to get into the same sort of mindset that I was in talking to him because um, he was talking about like teleporting and other wild things. But from the one of the things he was talking about was like how the different particles can make like the particle accelerators and then 
we touched a little bit on fusion versus fission and I'm not, can you, what is the difference exactly? Or, oh, well, generally. So they're, they're kind of opposite phenomenons. Um, if you think of uh, fission is breaking, uh, you're, you're utilizing the energy that is stored inside of the uranium atoms uh, by breaking it apart and releasing uh, that energy. Um, and so you use that to, to boil water where fusion is the opposite. You're going to take two, uh, part of you're going to take two um, uh, hydrogen atoms usually and you smash them together and when you smash them together they fuse um, and when they do fuse that releases a substantial amount of energy which is actually much greater than the energy released in a in a fission uh, reaction and the other part of that is the byproduct of smashing two hydrogen atoms together is water um, so the, the, you don't have the radioactive byproduct as much with a fusion reaction as you do. Uh, to, to compare power sources, uh, God, I hate to do this, but uh, I'll compare the two most uh, common things that people think of when they think of nuclear energy is bombs. Um, so the original nuclear bomb, Fat Man and Little Boy, uh, that was dropped on Japan uh, to end World War II, uh, those are fission bombs. And then if you look at, like, the megaton yield of some of the nuclear weapons that we have now, uh, they're hydrogen bombs. They're actually not nuclear bombs anymore. They're, they're fusion bombs. And that uh, technology is actually fusing of atoms together to release that energy. So if you look at the, the megaton yield versus nuclear weapons when they came into this world and what, they, what the capability of them is now, that's kind of your difference in magnitude of power capabilities of fission versus fusion. And then just the, the cleaner nature of fusion in general. But mankind hasn't, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We're, we're close, but we're not quite there yet to, to harness the atom to in, in that way for energy production. Yeah, so that was going to be the next question is, is are we, because no, all the ones now are still fission. So when, when you talk about going from fission to fusion to create energy, but also to make the reactor smaller, what is the... What's the science that go that goes into that? Because I would say, right, obviously it's an atom, so it's, so you can't see it. But the size of a reactor, at least when they were built back in like the seventies and eighties, needed to be big to kind of house the house the reaction. I guess what sort of like what hmm, I don't I know what I'm trying to ask in my head. I'm not sure how to word it properly. I guess the question is, what made it so that the the reactor like the thing that housed the reaction needed to be so big then and then because and then if fusion is more powerful than fission are we going towards both at the same time i don't do you know what i'm trying to ask or no yeah i think i understand so i think your question is kind of twofold it's one you look at and i mentioned it kind of briefly when i talked about um uh, the nuclear rebuild or new build that was popular uh, before the accident at Fukushima um, in a, a decade ago now. Um, and, and so that it, it really has to do with how much energy uh, you want to produce. Uh, the big baseload plants uh, produce on the order of like gigawatts of, of power where you're looking at these small modular reactors. They can be designed uh, for smaller outputs. Think like uh, military uh uh, bases, or they could be utilized for small power production. Uh, like I know there was an article out the other day that uh, Purdue University is working with Duke Energy uh, to possibly bring a small modular reactor to West Lafayette, Indiana, to power the campus in the local area. So you c- it can be used in smaller municipalities, and then they can be geared towards what you need. So you could actually chain several of these small modular reactors together on a site and then you're producing, once that power hits the grid, you're producing gigawatts of power. And then this, the smaller, uh, one of the great things about the design of the new small, small modular reactors is the safety systems are more passive. Um, because it's smaller, they rely more on natural recirculation, stuff like that, um, where you don't need these big pumps and turbines and stuff like that for safety systems. Uh, the safety systems are passive. So you don't need energy or electricity to run the safety systems where you look at the, the large reactors, the PWRs and BWRs that exist now in the United States, uh, a lot of them have diesel generators um, and large pumps for their safety systems in the event of an accident that you would utilize, where these small modular reactors eliminate those from the equation. It's just one less piece that could possibly go wrong in the event of an accident. When you talk about 
modular that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different systems. How, when they say they were going to move on to Indiana, how big, like what size are you talking about? I mean, you're, you're still looking at, it's going to, it's going to still have a, a footprint uh, like an industrial area would. It's just much smaller than the footprint you see in, um, in the, the power plants that we have running now. And then the modular piece is just because you can, you can put more than one on site on one site to, um, to meet your power production needs, whatever you need. So if it's you only need, I think the to, to put in perspective, I think the the, um, the uh, modular reactor that Bill Gates' company is working on is somewhere in the order of like 200 to 350 megawatts uh, per uh, reactor. The uh, plant I work at produces 1.21 gigawatts uh, per reactor, and we have two we're a two unit site. So just the amount of power produced is is much larger in the current reactors, and you can scale that down with the modular. But you can have multiple ones on site to to scale up uh, to that level of power if that's what your needs are based on where you're where you're building these. Gotcha. All right, so we're back. Technical difficulties. Um, we're talking about the modular power plants versus the big ones, and sort of the amount of energy that it creates. And real quick, so I have an understanding, but also so everybody else has an understanding. We talk about like kilowatts of power to put that into like a perspective where somebody can understand like what is a kilowatt of power? What is that able to power? Like what are you able to do with that level of energy? So to put in perspective, the uh, site I work with, um, let me see if I can look up real quick the exact number so I don't lie to you. I'll keep it um, memorized, but I believe the site I work with, like I said, it's two units, two identical units, both 1,200 megawatt. uh, That's the electricity output. Uh, That's not the thermal output because obviously you're dealing with the efficiency of a steam cycle. Yeah. And so uh, so both, that's two uh, 1,200 megawatt uh, unit sites, and that produces enough electricity, uh, carbon-free electricity, to power 2.3 million homes. Whoa. And so that that's kind of what you're looking at when you're looking to, and then remember that's megawatts, so you're talking an order of uh, magnitude greater uh, than looking at, at kilowatts. And if you look at, like, your microwave, it's like a 1,000 watts. Usually when you look at a, a microwave, look at the little rating on the inside yeah. of your door. So in, in these modular ones are in, in the kilowatt range? They're in the megawatt range. They still produce a lot of electricity. Uh, you're, you're talking megawatt range. Uh, some of them, depending on which design you're looking at, because there's several uh, companies that are looking at designing these. GE is designing some. Uh, like I said, TerraPower, uh, Bill Gates' company, Rolls-Royce is currently uh, yeah. trying to design uh, small modular reactors in the U.K., and so they range anywhere from 50 megawatts up to like 350 to 450 megawatts. So given everything that happened with Russia and Ukraine and the discussion about the dependency on different power sources and Germany has shut down their nuclear power plants, I think, I think it was them. Um, what are the... So for me, when, when everything that I hear, I hear very little downside to nuclear power as an energy source, aside from, obviously, you'd want to prevent the, like, the notable accidents that everybody knows about. But also, those are older plants that I would think we have mitigated a lot of the potential issues that those came with. So what are the, some of the, like, what's, what's the downsides that, like, why haven't, like, why is this not more widespread? Is it a, we as a society aren't used to the idea of nuclear or like what, like kind of what's in your perspective, what's going on with like the, because it doesn't seem to be, it's like a, <laughs> I don't want to use the term fringe, but like people don't really is you all always hear about wind and solar and hydro for the most part and not re- and nuclear is kind of like, well, maybe, but we should do these other ones instead. And I, that doesn't make sense to me. 
So I'll try to be as unbiased in my answer as possible, because based on the fact that I'm a nuclear yeah. engineer and I work at a nuclear power plant, um, that definitely influences that. My opinion shows uh, sure. right there based on my profession. Uh, but I, I think it's there's a couple uh, reasons why. First off, it's the way nuclear energy was introduced to us as a society, as a species. Uh, I mean, you think of nuclear any, anything, and you immediately think of weapons. You you think of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, you think of the Cold War. You think of the arms race. You think of nuclear weapons testing, nonproliferation. That's where everybody's mind goes initially. That's the way that this uh, 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 this technology was introduced to the world was through death and destruction uh, on a scale that is unparalleled still to this day. And so it goes back there. That that's where people's brains go and I can't fault people for that. You don't you don't think of a you don't think of solar you don't uh, think about a solar energy and thinking about two cities getting wiped off the the face of the earth. And so I won't discount people's feelings sure. uh, when they think about that because that would be doing them a disservice. Um and then I think as an industry we've done a very poor job of advertising that uh, hey this is this is different. This is not the same technology. These don't. These plants don't don't blow up in a nuclear fashion. It's not. It's not the same. Uh, people think about the. They'll look at the explosion from Chernobyl or Fukushima, and those weren't nuclear explosions. Um, uh, Fukushima wasn't, at least. Um, and, and so I think that has that has a little bit to do with it. But to say it's a, it's a fringe power source, it's it's really not. Twenty percent of the electricity in the United States is produced by nuclear power. Uh, so that's a fifth of all electricity production in the United States. And you think of the different forms. You mentioned the other green forms, solar, wind, uh, hydro, which actually can be incredibly destructive to an ecosystem. Um, but that, that doesn't even count natural gas, oil, uh, coal, and the other ones that produce tons of electricity. So we're still one-fifth of all the electricity produced in the United States. And so it's, that's really not a fringe. And um, it's always been in my opinion that nuclear power fission reaction is, is not actually the, the, the ultimate solution uh, to, uh, glo- uh, to global warming or it's not going to be the, the energy source that we use uh, as a society forever moving forward. But it is the best and only stopgap we have uh, to produce large baseload energy from where we're at now until wind and solar can pick up more of that baseload. Um, it's cliche at this point, but the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow and battery storage isn't there yet. Uh, it's not where it needs to be to, to power baseload because you can power homes, but you're not going to be able to power steel mills and factories and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that, that tra- it needs to be there for that transition, uh, until another power source like fusion becomes a viable power source. And then eventually I, I think sometime in the next hundred to two, three hundred years, you, know, you will see fission phased out as a power source as other renew- as renewables uh, become more efficient and fusion becomes a viable power source. Well, it's, yeah, it's really a function of the battery capabilities, though. I, I feel like the storage of the batteries, because until we're able to store enough to where, like, if we have a bunch of cloudy days in a row that everybody doesn't lose power, like we're not really for solar specifically, obviously there's other ones, but I think uh, I was listening to Elon talk about it, like on some interview that, I mean, he does tons of interviews, but um, he was just saying like how, I think he thought that battery technology would be further along by now than it was. And there's some, I don't, I don't know if it was one of the, I think it was lithium. Like there's a short, like a shortage of lithium or to be able to get the, the minerals needed to like really, do that i don't really i don't really know yeah there's 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 a it, it takes a lot of rare earth metals for those those high capacity batteries and you also have to look at where those minerals where those materials exist at a lot of them are in contested parts of the world uh, or become reliance on countries that you might not want to become reliant on uh for those materials uh, i mean look at what's happening with uh, the energy crisis in europe right now with the war in Ukraine. Uh, mm-hmm. It have similar conflicts in the future based on the resources needed for batteries. Uh, the other piece that people don't think about is the waste that battery production creates. There's quite a bit of very toxic waste uh, that is produced when these high capacity, uh, high storage density batteries are created. And so that's going to create another problem that we'll have to, to figure out how to store and use. 
it's just not as uh, widespread. Uh, it's not as known as much of the, the waste that that creates. So, um, yeah, battery capacity will get better, um, but it'll create its own next set of problems. But that's going to be true about any energy source that we, uh, we end up creating outside of uh, fusion energy. Since yeah. the, the power source for a fusion reactor is water. That's yeah. where you pull the hydrogen from. Yeah, for sure. I, what's what's odd to me is when I I sit on the sidelines and like I try and stay a little bit informed of energy stuff going on just because of I feel like it's good to know about these sorts of things. Um, but the broader discussion is doesn't seem to be as like cooperative as I would think from the standpoint of like as a society right we're like people will discount one instead of saying hey we'll use it until we can get a better version of this other thing it's like instead of pushing for example like okay yeah we'll use fission until wind and solar get to have the battery capacity to really be able to take that over so we don't have this risk or that risk like there's not there's not really that discussion like you, this is the, you saying this now it's the first time that i've heard of that perspective on energy i guess it's not on policy i guess policy as as a whole and that's something that i hadn't even hadn't really crossed my mind before um and that's very that's super interesting. I guess there's not really a question involved with this, but it's just an observation that I guess. What are your thoughts on that? Or like, do you are you observing the energy discussion as a whole as well, or are you kind of more in your like nuclear sort of not I guess bubble, but bubble for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean, I try to pay attention to, to you know uh, energy policy as a whole. And uh, like the direction of the planet's going, because we do need to get off of fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, but whatever, whatever that ends up looking like in the future, whether it's ex- expanded nuclear, which I think is, like I said, required as a stopgap to get us from point A to point B, uh, as its solar uh, gets more efficient and prices come down. Uh, right now, what a lot of people don't know, there's there's massive subsidies on wind and solar um, to keep them competitive, and. Uh, so, so we get those technologies where those aren't required. Um, and, and, and so I definitely keep track of, uh, like, energy policy. I, I think, actually, uh, recently there, there seems to be a shift in uh, public perception for energy policy, people becoming more aware. I think climate change has become less and less of a, a hot point. Uh, you see more agreement. Uh, you hear less argument about it. Uh, you still hear some, but I think there's pretty pretty widespread agreement that, Hey, we're causing damage to this planet, and we've got to find a way to stop. And uh, so, any piece of technology, any energy production uh, that's required to to get us off of fossil fuels is going to have a place in the future of energy production. Um, I just think nuclear is going to be a very large part of that uh, for the near, uh, for the near and short, for the short term as well as some long term. Because uh, you have to have energy diversity as as well. If you put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna end up having problems later because something's gonna happen. Uh, you're gonna end up finding some kind of fault somewhere. Uh, so energy diversification is is a huge thing that we need to be looking at outside of just what we're using to produce that energy. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean that's true of most things to not have your eggs all in one basket. Um, but I think yeah, like the climate change discussion used to be. Like, no, it's not happening. And then it would be like, you're a conspiracy theorist or like all these like things that were thrown around. And the discussion now seems to be more as like, I think everybody accepts that we need to get off fossil fuels, but it's just a matter of like how much are humans actually doing versus if humans are doing like damage to it, I think is more the discussion now. And of course that's like, that's difficult as well to, to kind of determine because there's so many variables that go into it. Um, but yeah, energy energy policy is like is super fascinating to me because I don't understand it really. And there's a there's a right way to there's a right solution for a lot of problems that if you take in like for example, you could have a problem and you could have a solution, but if policy like if 
it could be right for one group of people, but when you're making policy, you have to consider everyone. And so that is like, that becomes difficult. Like solar, for instance, in Texas is way more viable than solar up in like Maine where it's like cloudy and stuff all the time. So like policy to great policy for the whole country on that is super interesting. And so that, that for me is where like, when I listen to people discuss it in my head, I'm like, Oh, I feel like nuclear would just work in both places. (laughs) So, so I don't know. Like, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like the energy policy should be pushed, should be pushing more and like have more nuclear in it, but also I'm not versed. So I don't know if like it is, and I'm just wrong, but I don't know. I said, I mentioned this earlier and you said I was preaching to the choir. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you are, like I said, I, I think I used this in one of my job interviews. Uh, you don't, I got my degree is in nuclear engineering. You don't, you don't pigeonhole yourself with a degree like that. If you don't have uh, a belief in the technology yeah. and, uh, so um, I wouldn't have gotten that degree if I didn't think nuclear was a large part uh, of what we where the direction we need to go uh, as a planet for our energy production needs, because the amount of energy we need that uh, need to be produced to, to meet our daily needs is only going to go up exponentially. Uh, we are all fortunate to, to live in uh, in the United States where you don't worry about whether your lights are going to turn on or not. But you look at some of the growth countries. Um, their power needs are going to go up exponentially. If you look at China and India as an example, uh, their their power needs are going to explode in the next 10, mm-hmm. 50, 100 years. And you're going to need something to, to meet that baseload power need. And you're going to need to do it without pumping uh, things into the atmosphere. You're going to need to be able to do that uh, without continuing to cause damage to the planet. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, China's already doubled down on, on nuclear energy. They're 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 producing more, they're building more new plants than anybody here. And if if we get behind on that, it, it you also are going to run into a, a nuclear security or a national security issue, in my opinion. So, uh, it's very complicated, and I can't I can't begin to say I am an expert in any of that um, in public policy or anything. I just I just see a future where we're going to have to we're going to have to have hard discussions about what what directions we're going for our energy needs, and we're going to have to let the emotion of, uh, you know, uh, public opinion, we're going to have to let that go at some point and realize as a society, we, we have a direction we have to move and we've got to start moving in that direction or it's, we're going to find out it's too late real soon. Yeah. And even sub-Saharan Africa, like even after India and China come, they're probably next. And so it's not going to, the increased need for electricity and power is not really going to stop anytime soon is if we move more towards like, electric cars but then if we end up with electric planes and like other stuff like it's just never going to end the need for more and so yeah but <laughs> we definitely don't want to be behind on that because that's well being behind on something like that like you said national security as well but just like the potential unrest that could come up like could pop up from something like that is I don't. I'm just envisioning it now. I'm not. <laughs> I feel like we're getting we're heading to a really dark place right yeah, now. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, we can. Uh, you guys at home can envision that for yourselves, and we're gonna go somewhere else. But so you mentioned you got right. You got your degree in nuclear engineering. Um, and we're kind of going backwards a little bit with with the timeline. Most of the time, start with how somebody got into what they're doing, and then talk about the nuances of what they're doing afterwards this time we talked about the nuances first and now we're going to go so how did you how did you get into it you mentioned beforehand that your dad had been doing it for forever but sort of walk us through the interest level um what sort of piqued your interest like my dad was doing stuff and with civil engineering and i was like yeah i don't really want to do that so so something must have sparked for you at that point to to still want to do it yeah, let's let's Tarantino this. Let's let's take it back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, so uh, first, it, it started with like a, an interest. I knew I was interested in, in math and in science. I, I had a talent for it growing up. Um, I wasn't really challenged in in grade school or high school or anything like that. Um, and it kind of started. I, I had no idea what an engineer was, what an engineer did, uh, or if that was that was even a, a career path that I could take. Um, uh, yeah, I was aware of nuclear power. Like I said, my, my dad's uh, worked for uh, worked at a nuclear power plant for his in, entire career, and uh, so I, I knew it existed. But I 
not in my wildest dreams at that point was that what that what I wanted to do. Uh, my interest in, in engineering actually started my sophomore year in high school. I had a chemistry teacher. Um, we had a, an essay one time where we had to pick a a point in history that she wanted it to be semi like uh, confrontational kind of thing, like uh, take a take an opinion on something. And we were learning about like neutrons and electrons and, and stuff like that. And so I, I I wrote an essay about why uh the use of nuclear weapons in world war ii actually saved lives and uh to to get into that it's because the the ground war i mean this is totally off topic but uh my, my point was that the, the ground war that would have ensued in, in japan would have cost more civilian lives um based on Jap japanese total war uh that the way they were fighting at that point in world war ii would have ended up causing causing more uh more death destruction uh, then that was caused by the dropping of the two bombs. Um, and she read my essay and thought it was, uh, you know, for the sophomore in high school, uh, there was way more substance there than she was expecting. And she said, you know, have you ever looked at being going into engineering? You seem to have a passion for science and technology and, and it's talent for it. And I was like, I have no idea what an engineer is or what an engineer does. And so I kind of last out of that as a, you know, a 16 year old kid, I'm like engineer, that, that seems kind of cool. I could be an engineer. Don't know what one does, but, yeah, that that sounds neat, and that, that just kind of grew. Uh, my passion for science, technology, and, and various STEM things uh, grew from there. I took an engineering course in high school the following year, my junior year. Uh, it was more of a mechanical engineering. You got to you know you got to get into the shop and actually get your hands dirty and build various things. Like you had to build a self-powered car using whatever you you want. You had to build a trebuchet. Uh, you got to build uh, you know those little toys where you spin it and it flies. To, Figure out. You had to build one of those. You had to try to build a boat and see how many quarters it could hold. Uh, you did the bridge contest. Everybody remembers doing the bridge contest in high school. Where you build a bridge and see how much weight it can hold. You did stuff like that. And so my passion for engineering just kind of continued to grow. And like I said, my dad works at a, a nuclear power plant. And so I kind of started to connect the dots at that point and say, hey, this is. And uh, and then around the 2005, 2006 time frame, uh, I graduated high school in 2005 uh, to age myself a little bit. Um, and like I said earlier, nuclear nuclear new build was the thing. We were we were going all in. They were talking about peak oil. If you remember around 2005, 2006, it was peak oil. We were going to run out of oil, and gas prices were through the roof. It's kind of similar to what you're seeing now uh, before the economic crash in 2008. And so uh, I had a, I was like, yeah, this, this seems right. I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be an engineer. That's what I'm going to do. So I applied to various Big Ten schools as I live in the Midwest. And uh, by chance, I, funny, uh, funny enough, I applied to Purdue because uh, they didn't require an essay. And I can be uh, lazy when it comes to things like that because <laughs> I'm not very good at writing. That. Um, like I said, my, my talent is in math and science and technology. Writing is, is not, was not my strong suit in, in high school. And Purdue didn't have an entry. You didn't have to write uh, an essay. So I applied there. I, I got in, and kind of the rest is history. They get you into a, a general engineering, and I, I knew I either wanted to do aeronautical engineering because I always wanted to fly. I, I contemplated going into the Air Force at one point. Um, but civilian life seemed uh, like the better choice for me. And uh, so I looked at between aeronautical and nuclear, and they had little introduction classes uh, that you could take your freshman year where it's like, hey, this is kind of – what you're looking at and I, I chose nuclear at that point and it just kind of grew from there fair enough <laughs> i know a lot of people that applied to school so they didn't have essay requirements i don't think there's any schools left that don't have essay requirements yeah, I, I know they I require think. one now because my brother-in-law uh went to purdue years later and uh he had to write an essay yeah so maybe i just I, lucked out no i definitely did that also um <laughs> That's crazy. It's wild because I also had a sort of was doing all those like the bridge projects and the different like building things with toothpicks and seeing if you could hold like an egg with it and like doing all those different projects and stuff. But the and this is the same reason why I never got into like software, software stuff either. It's like the the concepts really intrigue me. But then once you get down to like actually doing the math or in, in software engineering, like you could have a one extra space and it breaks the whole code. So like I don't have the, the mental patience to go find that one space. And it's, so that's why I enjoy talking to people like you and like Garrett and like other people like Chris and Tom, 
who are super in that, but it's like I the patience that you guys have to just do like it's mind boggling almost to to think about. Because I remember taking let's see, I took multivariable and then differential equations, and I got through those. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my dad was like, you got through differential equations. You might as well just finish the minor. And I was like, no, dude. It's just like, I'm not, I'm not going past <laughs> this anymore. Oh, takes a certain type of mind for sure. Yeah, I, I could definitely tell you my, my passion for, for math ends at the theoretical. Uh, so once you pass into the realm of theoretical math where you're working with dimensions that don't exist, uh, my my passion for math drops off pretty quickly at that point. Uh, oh, I like to stick sure. to the uh, the the real world application. Uh, yeah. I did take a theoretical math course uh, one time at college because I thought it'd be a great idea to take a five hundred level, a graduate level math course, and that uh, was just a, just a bad idea for any young viewers out there. If math <laughs> isn't, uh, you're not going to be a math major, and you know solving theor- uh, theoretical equations like in Goodwill Hunting isn't your thing. Don't take five hundred level uh, course math courses. Just don't do it. No, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible idea. Now, Garrett is the only person that I know that did that and liked it, and he works for the Navy now doing stuff with, like, quantum mechanics and lasers. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's his thing. He was, tra- he was trying to explain to me the math behind teleporting, and I was like, dude, it's like I like the concept of teleporting, but I'm lost just, now. Just tell me it works and beam me up. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah, so actually – now, because this is my cool thing that I remember is the education I've taken from the podcast. Basically, he had like a piece of paper and there's an equation that like if you curve the paper, you can go from in from one side and out the other. Theoretically is how that would work. But to put a human through that, it would like tear you apart because like the like the force is like it's not possible to actually go through physically right now. But theoretically, I guess there's a certain number of equations that make that work. Um yeah, Sounds like the uh, bending of space-time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Part of me thinks we shouldn't be messing with that stuff. He's telling me there's like a particle accelerator in uh, Switzerland or something. He's like, yeah, if they screw it up, they'll create a black hole. And I was like, oh, that's good. Well, I guess I'll just be waiting for that then. That or the next <laughs> Chernobyl, whichever one. Uh, I, I, I can tell you there will never be another Chernobyl because uh, that design reactor doesn't... Uh, function anymore well that's a good thing so walk us through then the like the those sorts of accidents that happen like what what causes those you mentioned the the peaks and valleys of like the power spikes and stuff and how you'd want how you'd want it to be flat you see like in in show tv shows where things go wrong there's always like a power spike that blows the safety thing off the system and then everything explodes it's usually how that works but how does that actually work in practice? Like when you're sitting in the in the Bart Simpson control room or Homer Simpson, Jesus, man. <laughs> when you're when you're sitting in the in the control room and looking at all the charts and knobs and lights and stuff, like what what's actually going on in there? No, so that that's actually a that's a good point. So I can kind of differ, differentiate between the, the various nuclear accidents that have become famous, and I'll, and I'll start with Chernobyl. Chernobyl is a it's a RBK reactor, and if you see the HBO show, it's RBK for those listening. Uh, it's just the it, it is the design. Uh, I don't okay. know what the what it stands for, but it's a it's a graphite moderated uh, reactor. Um, so it, it's completely different than the type of reactors you think of in the United States. So the, the vessel itself is not uh, it's not uh, submerged in water uh it, it passes tubes through uh the core that heated up that way um and there, there's a couple design issues with that is that it is it has a positive power coefficient which means uh as it produces more power the reaction wants to get stronger um as it produces more heat it wants to get stronger um where like in the united states so if, if as the um uh, as the chain, nuclear chain reaction gets stronger, it wants to uh, continue to make that reaction stronger. Um, all reactors in the United States have a negative power coefficient. So as the nuclear chain reaction increases, it wants the physics behind it wants to then decrease that reaction and start shutting the reactor down. Um, it also had to do with the fact that they are their control rods that they use to control uh, the reaction are graphite tipped. And they were doing a special test 
to see how long they could power the local area uh, during low power operations during a turbine coast down. Um, and other uh, other plants with the same design in the area had said, no, we're not going to do this. This is not a safe test. Um, and this test had been delayed. But if you look back at the politics of Soviet Russia at the time, the plants weren't run by engineers and scientists. Uh, they were run by the party. And so you had someone who wanted to make their way and in, into the the the, uh, the communist party um, said no, we're going to do this test. It was a politician that made the decision, and they weren't challenged from the operators at the station. Uh, there were other op- stations that denied and said we're not going to do this test. It's not safe. Uh, you had some with political aspirations in this instance, and they said no, we're going to perform this test. Uh, so they had to first to bypass safety systems to get to a point where they could perform this test, which is a big no-no. Um, and the test was also delayed. And so what they had to do to get the reactor back to its power level that it needed to be, they actually withdrew their control rods all the way out. And so these graphite tips uh, were now exposed. And what happened was as the – so they, they proceeded with the test. And what happened was they went uh, – they, they started producing too much power, and when they went to insert the control rods, these graphite tips actually had a uh, positive reactivity addition, which means they made the reaction stronger when they went to shut down the reaction, and they went what we call prompt critical. Um, so when you have a nuclear reaction, there are uh, – the physics behind it, there are delayed neutrons, and there are prompt neutrons. Uh, delayed neutrons uh, occur some that they, – they're released from the reaction sometime after – uh, the initial chain reaction begins. And that's actually what allows us to control uh, a nuclear chain reaction is those delayed neutrons. If you go prompt critical, your power increase happens exponentially. And so when they inserted these graphite tips, they went prompt critical. Um, and so what happens then is your power production went up exponentially in the course of seconds. And they produce so much power um, that they uh, – the it overpowered the, the reactor, and what you saw was um, an explosion based on going prompt critical. And then to, to worsen that, since it was a graphite-moderated core, graphite has a very violent reaction with water. And so then you had the graphite core, uh, the graphite moderator, come into contact with water. And then on top of going prompt critical, you end up with a steam explosion. And the power went up so high that, I mean, if you've watched the Chernobyl uh, show on HBO, it just it blew the top right off. Uh, so plants in the United States are not of, of that design. Um, Regulatory-wise, uh, the United States regulates uh, our reactors more than any other country on, on the planet. We have uh, safety systems in place, and I can tell you the operators like myself, like I said, you're, you're, you're trained 18 months uh, just to get your license and say you are allowed to, to do this. And most of that training is for accident scenarios that will never happen. That's what we do in our simulator. Uh, they throw stuff. If you think about uh, think about like the Kobayashi Ru uh, from Star Trek, where they they just throw disaster after disaster at you in any hypothetical or unrealistic situation, just to make sure that if that hypothetical happens, you know how to react, you know where to go in your procedures, and you know how to put that plant in a safe condition. Um, and they throw that at us over and over and over and over again. Uh, so you're you're going off muscle memory when when these type of things happen, and you'll see. Uh, I remember, uh, so when I was a, a brand-new hire, just started as an equipment operator and finished my – it takes a year to get qualified as an equipment operator uh, after you get hired, and I had just been qualified, and uh, we, we took a SCRAM, which is – a SCRAM is just – it stands for Safety Control Rod Accident, and that's just because the uh, in the Chicago pile at the University of Chicago, uh, when they first were testing that they could sustain a nuclear reaction, the guy that set it down was actually a guy with an axe – over, sitting there by a rope, so they wanted to insert the control rod to shut down the reaction. He would swing that axe and cut the rope and drop it in. And that's why a scram is called a scram. And it's just some, kind of a, a fun story uh, that's gone through the industry, and it, it, it's held to that day as safety control rod axe man. Uh, so we we had a we actually had a, a storm that caused electrical perturbation, so we had to shut the plant down. And I remember walking into that control room, and you see lights flashing, and you see the the operators in that control room and the supervisor. They just they go. And they know exactly what to do. They're, the guys are already calling out what they're looking at, what they're doing. Um, and that was just for shutting the plant down. I mean, to me, as a brand-new operator, I walk in, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you, you get into the training, and it's, it's automatic. And that, that to, 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 to a trained operator at that point, something like that, it's, it's mundane, and it's, it's boring. And that, that's what you want. 
Uh, so if, if something like that, that someone walks in and, and goes, whoa, and these guys are just like, uh, it's, it's a Tuesday, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, one of the best compliments I ever got, my, my brother is actually in the process of getting his license uh, right now. And he walked into his first simulator set and kind of got a demonstration. And he called me on his way. He was like, Steve, I, I had no idea what you did, but I have a huge respect for what you do now. It, it just just to know that these these guys are, are trained to the level like you, you think like Navy SEALs are trained for like military action. That's what these operators are trained for uh, as a parallel when it comes to how to run these plants. Uh, and then so I guess the next the next big one that everybody talks about uh, is uh, Fukushima. And uh, so what you had happen there and that, that is a design. We do have uh, reactors like that in the United States. Uh, but I can tell you the way they ran those plant plants in Japan is, is there's not a perfect parallel to how we run the plants in the United States. Our regulatory body has much more teeth. Uh, they will shut you down when they have shut plants down in the past for, for, for violations. Uh, and the Japanese regulatory uh, body just didn't, didn't have that, those teeth to, to, to govern them. And so you had a, uh, you had a, a, the largest tsunami that uh, that part of the planet has ever seen. And so these uh, these plants were rated for uh, whatever size tsunami. I can't remember the size of it. And uh, you had a tsunami that was that was multiple multiples stronger than that with a higher wave. Um, and so it broke over their seawall. And really, what happened if you, if you go through it was the uh, the the wave that came through in that wall of water actually washed away their their diesel generators because their store they stored their diesel their diesel fuel outside and so if you think about it um like i i could only imagine that would be like here in the midwest storing our diesel fuel outside when we can experience tornadoes um i could tell you like all the in the midwest plants all of our uh, diesel fuel is stored underground in essentially a, a giant concrete structure um and they have been told their 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 regulators had said hey you need to, to move it. you need to make your seawall higher and you need to change the storage location you're 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 storing your diesel fuel underwater, essentially. And so, but they're like, ah, it's, it's a, we'll never see a tsunami that big. Well, we did. And actually, the earthquake, the plants all operated phenomenally, phenomenally on the earthquake. A higher than design basis earthquake. And every single one of those plants weathered that earthquake just fine. It was the tsunami that caused the ultimate destruction. And then there were, there were politics involved, um, from my understanding, um, there were they needed to vent their containment because everybody remembers that you know the uh, the explosion that happened at uh, Fukushima, and when you see the the, the the and what that was that was a that was a hydrogen explosion, and I'll never forget that. I remember Bill Nye the Science Guy was on like MSNBC or CNN or something like that, and he mentioned that like hydrogen is not a byproduct of nuclear power. That's not what happened, and I actually lost a lot of respect for Bill Nye that day because. Hydrogen absolutely is a, is a byproduct of a nuclear reaction. It's the hydrolysis of water. And because they were running so long without electricity, um, what happened was is you uncover fuel and the temperatures get so high, you end up with a couple of reactions that uh, you actually get hydrogen production from the hydrolysis of water. So you're breaking down those water molecules. And then there's a, a zircaloy. The, the, the fuel rods have zirconium in them. And when zirconium hits high temperatures, uh, the zirconium alloy will release hydrogen. And what what really was the case there is they needed to vent their containment atmosphere. They needed to say, we need to release some level of radiation and we need to drop this pressure down. We need to get the hydrogen out of containment. Um, and there was a political discussion that I believe went all the way up to the Japanese prime minister. And they were like, no, you're not, you're not venting these. You're not, you're not going to vent these. And what happened was, is you, you had a hydrogen explosion uh, because of that, because they would not vent their containments. And I, I could tell you all the emergency procedures uh, for the uh, uh, nuclear reactors in the United States all have procedural guidance that uh, if you were to have that, that, you know, that accident, like a Fukushima level event, uh, we all have guidance to say, yeah, it's, it's either vent a little bit to the atmosphere or blow the top off. And you're going to vent that thing to the atmosphere. You're going to, you're going to keep the hell. Our ultimate goal as a licensed nuclear reactor, uh, reactor operator is the health and safety of the public. My uh, my company cannot come down and tell me what to do. I have the license. Um, yeah. 
my the, the senior vice president, the CEO of the company I work for, cannot call me and say, you're going to do this because I can tell him I have the license. I'm going to do this. Uh, the governor of Illinois can't come down and tell me you're going to do this because I'm not. You. I'm going to tell him I have the license. The president of the United States, God. Uh, Joe Biden could call me in the control room and say, I need you to do this, and I can tell Joe Biden politely, sir, I'm a licensed nuclear reactor operator, and you are not. And uh, I can tell you that culture is is so strong amongst those operators. They all feel a responsibility. Our ultimate responsibility is the health and safety of the public, and that permeates every point of of nuclear power because it is unique. Um, And that culture – along with the regulation uh, and the procedures we have in place, separate the nuclear industry in the United States uh, from the nuclear industry in other places of the world where you've seen these accidents happen. All right, yeah, so uh, now that you got that, I kind of got that whole spiel. I can just, I can end that, that, that uh, little uh, monologue, which is saying that the amount of respect uh, and admiration I have for all the nuclear operators at the various plants in the United States, uh, just I, I can reiterate a thousand times they are professionals. They are trained to a level uh, that is beyond comprehension uh, for most people, um, and that that level of event just that you see in Fukushima or um, uh, Chernobyl that that type of event is is beyond the level of reality for plants the, the way the plants are run here in the United States, and and that does segue pretty nice into the the other the other nuclear accident that. Uh, Everybody always thinks about it, especially because now Netflix has a, a documentary come out, I think, tomorrow on uh, Three Mile Island. So Three Mile Island is the one uh, nuclear accident uh, in the United States that people think of. And Three Mile Island uh, did have a partial core meltdown. Uh, and it was actually – it's funny how we, we kind of did this all out of order. Three Mile Island was the first nuclear accident. It was the one that happened first. It happened before Chernobyl. Um, and just to, to put it in perspective – there was not a single uh, fatality from Three Mile Island. There was no radiation leak to the environment, uh, despite what this Netflix documentary that's going to come out and tell you. Because uh, to me, that's looking at the previews, it looks like a giant hit piece because they couldn't miss out on that money that HBO got uh, from Chernobyl. Um, but Three, Three Mile Island was it was a watershed moment for the nuclear industry. Um, so really, what happened was is there was a a, a lack of understanding on what a what the, the the team in the control room uh was reading uh they thought they were reading one thing they thought they so they, they they shut off their safety systems and if you remember back to my talk about chernobyl one of the big no-nos is, is shutting off your safety systems you don't you don't do it uh so they, they didn't understand one of the readings uh they secured their safety systems they thought their pressurizer level was rising but in reality the uh, their pressurizer level was dropping um Without getting into detail, a lot of the, the details, uh, they had a piece of equipment that was out of service, and there was actually a site, a uh, similar site, uh, not that long before that, that had a similar issue, and they resolved it, no problems. And this watershed moment for the nuclear industry, because there's a, there's a uniqueness here that you don't see in a lot of inter- industry, uh, industries, is the various competitors that all run nuclear power plants, uh, they actually talk. Uh, we have a self-governing body uh, uh, called INPO which is the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, and that is actually paid for by all the various utilities that run nuclear power plants. And we all talk. Uh, we all share OPEX. We share experiences. We share things that have gone wrong. We share. Uh, we benchmark each other. I mean, you don't you don't see a lot of competitors. You don't see Apple going to tell go to Google's headquarters and talking about, hey, this is what we're working on. What are you guys working on? Uh, and in the nuclear industry, that that's what we do. Uh, that's extremely commonplace um, to go to to go look at your competitors. Uh, I just uh, did a review for one of my company's competitors last fall where I went and looked at uh, their outage preparedness and what they were doing. Um, Because we all understand there's an understanding that uh, if there's ever an accident to that level of Fukushima, Chernobyl, or even another TMI uh, in the United States, the nuclear industry is done. There's, there's no, um, there's no bandwidth for that. And there, and there shouldn't be. Uh, like I said before, that uh, my ultimate priority is the health and safety of the public above anything else uh, when we're operating uh, these units. And so there's just that uniqueness to nuclear power. You, you, nuclear power is it, – it's a cliche in the industry, but it's it, nuclear power is unique. 
and that's just one aspect of it. And that's kind of so that TMI is what caused that. Now the the cooperation between the the competitors is just like I said, it's something you not you don't see anywhere else, and it's one of the reasons that the nuclear industry in the United States is, in my opinion, the the safest in the world. And that actual uh, that culture has now permeated the rest of the world because there's also an organization that you may have heard of called WANO, the world. Uh, it's the world's version of, of the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, um, where there's a similar governing body that uh, that travels all across the world. We share OPEX with plants in the UK and in France and in Germany, uh, that we all share those OPEXs, those operating experiences, so we can all continue to grow as an industry. Because uh, we all understand that that there just there isn't an appetite for that, and like I said, there shouldn't be. Yeah, that's actually quite comforting to hear that from like a from an outsider that it is like that because the consequence, the potential consequences for something gone wrong for you guys is catastrophic compared to somebody else. Like lose, like another company just losing money or whatever. It's like, yeah. Well, with all that said, I really appreciate your time and patience for the, uh, through the <laughs> zoom was not cooperating with us today. Um, I really appreciate your time. I learned a ton for those listening. Um, hopefully you guys learn stuff also. And cause I've not seen a ton of the nuclear people out and about advertising nuclear stuff. Um, so yeah, anything you want to plug? I don't know. Do you have a book coming out like Chris or something? Uh, no, or something? I, I, no, no, I, I am not as well versed as uh, my much smarter cousin. Um, both of them. No, I don't. I don't have a book or anything coming out like that. Uh, just I appreciate you having me on. It's the first time I've done something like this. Uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to like high schoolers and stuff. Uh, I did it. Uh, get to talk to a, a high school uh, group of high school students in Hawaii one time. Uh, it was virtual like this. I didn't get to go to Hawaii, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I've never done anything like this in podcast. And if you ever wanted me back, I'd be I'd be more than happy to come back and get any follow ups. So yes. Uh, I would look forward to doing this type of thing again. Hopefully it was uh, informative to, like you said, your, your 20 viewers. Hopefully you get more than 20 viewers. <laughs> I'm, I'm rooting for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to go back. You got one more viewer. Cause I'm going to go back through your, your podcast. And I'm going to start listening to them uh, outside of the one that has my cousin in it. So uh, it, it's been I, a lot of fun and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Hopefully next time zoom will cooperate more. So it doesn't cut you off in the middle of a passionate rant about safety. So uh, <laughs> Hey, maybe maybe, uh, maybe I can be your first and only three-part series. Uh, maybe. We'll see. Hopefully, I'll edit it together and nobody will know, even though we just told everybody. Although, <laughs> they won't have known when they get to that part. They'll know at the end, though. <sighs> All right. Before Zoom cuts us off again, I know you got an appointment. you got to run. Um, I appreciate it. With that, guys, we'll talk to you next time. Peace.